quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's hard to say good morning on a day like today. Yeah, I, had, I honestly had trouble sleeping last night thinking about all those people who died and just what's behind it. And my honest thought was, how long is this going to be in the news? Because this would have been, usually, we keep these things in the news, would have been in the old days, right? When these things, we first started taking notice of them. One to two weeks. And then, sadly, unfortunately, we've gotten all too used to it because it just happens so much and we should. And now we're seeing so much crossover with people who have been at one mass shooting and now are on site for another. That's the situation here. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. We're going to get started with the five things to know for this Tuesday, March 28th, as we are covering the shooting out of Nashville. In Nashville and the nation, they're all mourning after another deadly school shooting that has happened. Overnight, police have released new video of the shooter entering the school before killing three nine-year-olds and three adults. We have extensive reporting on that. Also, tensions easing in Israel after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu backed off of his push to overhaul the country's judicial system. He says he is delaying the legislation after mass protests. Also today, new unrest in France over the increase in the retirement age. Protesters vowing mass demonstrations to shut the country down. Also here in New York, a crucial witness in the Trump hush money case has testified again David Pecker, as you see here, is the former publisher of the National Enquirer. He appeared before the grand jury for a second time as those jurors are set to meet again tomorrow. Also today, a rare spectacle event in the stars. NASA says five planets will align starting tonight. No binoculars needed. Just look up. CNN This Morning starts right now. We're going to start this morning with a chilling new video that has been released from police overnight from inside the school where yesterday three children and three staff members were murdered. We want to warn you that this is disturbing. It's hard to watch. It is surveillance video that shows the shooter who has now been identified as a 28-year-old former student arriving at Covenant School here, which is a small private Christian school, elementary school outside inside Nashville. The shooter was heavily armed with a handgun and two assault-style weapons. The shooter blasted through the entryway glass doors and then climbed through before roaming the hallways, eventually taking six innocent lives. The attack unfolded over about 14 minutes. The first call we are told about the shooting came in at 10.13 a.m. The shooter was dead by 10.27. CNN has also obtained audio from the dispatch. And again, we want to warn you that it's disturbing. Sounds like they got a little jet active shooter at a school. All units, be advised. We are under a mass casualty alert. Multiple victims down. And we are learning more about the attacker at this hour. This is what we know right now. 28-year-old Audrey Hale was described by police as a female-to-male transgender person. Hale previously attended the school. And we are getting brand new information this morning. According to our affiliate WTVF, the shooter reached out to a former middle school teammate at about 9.57 a.m., just minutes before the first shots. 
And then that person says that Hale messaged her on Instagram that Hale planned to die by suicide and that she would see it on the news. One day this will make more sense. I've left behind more than enough evidence behind. But something bad is about to happen, the message stated. Now, this person tells WTVF that she called police at 10.13 a.m. At that point, the shooting had already begun. CNN's Amara Walker is covering all of this live from Nashville. MJ Lee standing by at the White House. First, we want to go to you, Amara, as we are learning more about this, learning more now about these messages uh, that the shooter allegedly sent to someone in the hours before this actually went happened. What more are you learning this morning? Well, this is just adding to the evidence that this was an attack that was thoroughly thought out and planned as police pointed to the maps uh, of the school that the shooter had. And, of course, uh, those writings that were found in that Honda Fit, the shooter's car, that police are still going through. I do also want to talk about the victims. You are getting new information, learning more about uh, one of the younger victims, nine-year-old Hallie Scruggs. According to the New York Times, she was the daughter of a pastor here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. As you'd imagine, Caitlin, there is such a deep sadness here in this community. You can feel it. You feel it in your heart. So many questions as to why this happened as police will be spending a second day processing this crime scene. I don't know how somebody could go through with doing something like that and especially children, like just, it's disgusting. And I, yeah, I just, I have no words. This morning, another community is in mourning after what police are calling a targeted attack by 28-year-old Audrey Hale, a former student who showed up on campus to execute a pre-written plan. It indicates that there was gonna be uh, shootings at multiple locations. Uh, and um, and the school was one of them. There was actually a map uh, of the school detailing surveillance uh, entry points and how this was going to be carried out on this day. Metro Nashville Police releasing more than two minutes of surveillance video showing the moment Hale arrived on campus. In the video, Hale is seen driving through the parking lot of the Covenant School in a silver Honda Fit. The security camera footage then cuts to video of Hale opening fire on glass double doors at an entrance of the school before climbing in. As the video continues, you see Hale start roaming the hallways. Police say Hale had three weapons, an AR-style rifle, an AR-style pistol, and a handgun, along with significant ammunition. Police say they believe two of those weapons may have been obtained legally. Officers say when they arrived on scene, Hale fired on them from a second-story window, one patrol car taking a bullet to the windshield. Police say two officers confronted Hale on the second floor, and Hale was killed. During the shooting, Avery Myrick was texting with her mother, a teacher at the school. I texted her, and I said just like what was going on. She said she was hiding in the closet and that there was shooting all over. She later spoke to her mother by phone and learned she was safe. This morning, we're learning more about the victims. The three nine-year-olds who were killed, Evelyn Dickhouse, William Kenny, Hallie Scruggs. Also killed 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz, who, according to the school's website, was the head of the school. Police also identifying 61-year-old Mike Hill, a custodian, and 61-year-old Cynthia Peake, a substitute teacher. 
Police continue to investigate a motive, but say they have a theory. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school. Uh, don't have all the details of that just yet, and, uh, and that's why this incident occurred. And I do want to point out uh, the names of the two Metro Nashville police officers who heroically uh, shot and killed the shooter uh, on the second floor. That is where the shooter died of the school. Uh, Michael Colazzo, a veteran of the police department for nine years, and Rex Engelbert, a veteran officer there for four years. Look, they responded within 14 minutes of the call coming in, uh, but sadly, that quick response wasn't enough to prevent those six deaths. Guys? Yeah, absolutely. It's just unbelievable to see what the timeline looks like and just how quickly things can happen. Amber Walker, thank you. I want to show you now live pictures right now of the White House where flags are being flown at half-staff to honor the Nashville victims. The president addressing the nation in the hours following the attack. It's heartbreaking, uh, a family's worst nightmare. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of the nation. And we, we have to do more to protect our schools so they aren't turned into prisons. Straight out MJ Lee, you see her live there at the White House. Jay, hello to you. What else have we heard from the president after yet another national tragedy? Well, Don, this morning and until Friday evening at sunset, the flags here at the White House and all federal buildings will be flown at half staff. The president saying this is to honor the victims of the senseless acts of violence in Nashville. You know, yesterday we saw the president have an experience that so many Americans have, and that is to learn of another mass shooting in this country, and this time at a school. Uh, an administration official I was speaking with last night said that when the president was initially briefed about the shooting and he was told that six people had died and that among the victims were young children, that he had a quite visceral reaction. Uh, we, of course, saw that when we saw him delivering remarks at the White House yesterday afternoon. And he said that a shooting like yesterday's really is uh, every American family's worst nightmare, Don. Uh, I've got to ask you about the president because he has repeatedly, MJ, called for an assault ba weapons ban yet virtually no progress has been made. Is there anything more that he can do or that he's planning to do? Are you hearing anything from the administration? Yeah, you know, John, I think uh, for a lot of people, the short answer would be no. There's just nothing that he can do, that there isn't a path to get this done. I think what the president would say is actually Washington has done this before. There was an assault weapons ban in place in this country until expired in 2004. Uh, he would certainly say Washington can and should do this again. Uh, as for sort of the impossible math on Capitol Hill uh, for something like this, we've heard the president saying this before that that is what everyone said, too, after the Uvalde school shooting. But then what we saw happen was Capitol Hill uh, passing legislation, the first bipartisan gun safety bill uh, to pass the country in several decades. So I think he would certainly argue that if there is a political will, there is a path. I heard you talking uh, with Caitlin earlier. We don't even know how long the shooting is going to be in the news this time, right? That's sort of where our head goes. So uh, we don't know if there's going to be the political will after 
dangerous shooting like yesterday's, Don. You're absolutely right. That's just candor and the truth that you're speaking right there, MJ. And, and it is up to us to continue to put a focus on this to figure out what can be done, whether it's gun legislation, mental health, or whatever it is. So thank you. We'll get back to MJ Lee at the White House. We're waiting more word from the White House. As a matter of fact, we're going to speak with the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. She's going to join us on President Biden's plan of action. For more now, though, I want to bring in CNN senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe, as well as our CNN national security analyst, Julia Kayam. Thank you both uh, for being here this morning. Andy, I want to start with you on this brand new reporting that we're just getting in on what this message that a former teammate of the shooter uh, received right before the shooting. I mean, this came in at about uh, 9.57 local time, according to this former teammate. And the shooter said, one day this will make more sense. Quote, I've left behind more than enough evidence but something bad is about to happen. The person who received that message said that they called the Suicide Prevention Helpline, that they also called a non-emergency number as well. What do you make of this message that we're learning about? You know, I mean, initially, Caitlin, it just uh, impacts you. It's just yet another tragic uh, layer on an unbelievably horrible situation. Um, it, it's not clear that uh, that that message could could have resulted in interdicting this shooter before uh, they got to the uh, the location they'd already targeted. The timing is very close, uh, but nevertheless, it is absolutely an indication, if, if as if we needed another one, that this person, like many other mass shooters planned this activity out carefully, conducted some sort of surveillance activity, or at least the creation of maps that indicated surveillance points and entry points into the building, obviously went through the process of acquiring weapons, becoming proficient with them. So these are things that happen, they don't happen overnight. Mass shootings aren't typically, um, you know, committed in a, in a sudden rage. We've seen time and time again, mass shooters, they make plans, they acquire weapons, they take a look at the place that they're intending to go, uh, and they oftentimes leave statements or manifestos behind as this, as this person did. So all of that period of planning and all of that period of thinking and talking and reaching out to other, peer, other individuals sometimes leaves clues for family members and friends and others to actually reach out and try to contact the authorities before these things happen. That's one of the messages we have to get out to people today. If you have someone in your life who you're concerned about, please reach out to the authorities to make it known to them. Uh, Juliet, let's... Um talk about um, the thing that everyone is talking about. Everyone is thinking, but they don't want to talk about it. And that is the identity yeah. of the shooter. Okay. Yes. And it's a member of the LGBTQ community. I think this is important to bring up. And you as a parent can talk about these issues. Yeah. So the police are identifying the shooter as a trans woman, would actually be a trans man. So there's sort of a misidentification there, but this is all new. I'm just wondering the identity of being a transgender person and also being identified as a woman does this pose any sort of difference or difficulty for the for police because it's not typically a woman, regardless of how they are identifying? So there are a couple yeah. of things here that are different and that we are going to have to talk about and, and delve into. Right. So each of these cases is always going to have a particular difference, right? Whether it's uh, uh, someone is angry at their father or someone had something happen at the school. And this is a unique case, and we have to be sensitive about it to the extent that Audrey Hale identified as a woman. We do not see mass shooters uh, who are female, especially in particular school shooting uh, murderers. Those, that is, that is, uh, uh, this is actually, I think, the first time 
that I can remember. I know I was on air yesterday stating the same. And so that uniqueness is obviously going to go to only one part of this, right? Each of these school shootings has motive and means. Motive goes to the particular person, what's their mental health uh, situation, what happened at the school, why did they choose that target? Uh, as Andrew was saying, what clues did they leave behind? What was their community seeing? And then the means. And then that's when you get the connectivity, right? That's when you start to see these are all starting to look the same, right? I sort of think now, like, we don't own guns in this country. Guns own us at this stage. And this is where we have to now focus on an important part of, of an agenda, which includes mental health, protecting our kids, fortifying schools, but also the connectivity, which is a certain kind of gun. I, I you know, look, pronouns, pronouns do not kill children, right? People with guns kill children, and it's going to be a distraction in our coverage and keep us from what we now know, which is each of these cases has a similarity uh, more than any difference. Yeah, and, and police are identifying the shooter as a trans person, just so you know, right? Yeah. Just so you know, and you're right, it shouldn't matter the pronoun, but it is something that is different and people are discussing oh, it. I think we should discuss it, also be sensitive about it, but it is an important part of the, of the conversation. Yeah, talking about the profile of the shooter. Yeah. And yeah. Andy, as we look at this surveillance footage that we've gotten overnight that shows the shooter driving up to campus, obviously one we are told the shooter was a former student, so likely knew the campus well, and then entering through a building, a door that we are told was locked, shooting through it and then, and then stepping inside of it. You know, what you seem to see from this is that it shows that even a well-coordinated police response, like it appears that we have here, a locked door, is not enough to stop something like this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, uh, Caitlin. There's a number of indicators here to show that the police response was particularly good. You know, it was very quick. They uh, they had a, a, a fairly large tactical team enter right away, five-person team. Three people took the ground floor. Two people went to the top floor. They were integrated with uh, fire department assets to be able to provide emergency medical assistance right away. Uh, they engaged the target and, and, um, and eliminated it quickly. But it doesn't matter how quickly police respond. They will always be behind the shooter. They're always reacting to what's already happened. And we also know that in mass shootings, the majority of casualties take place in the first minute or two. So um, it's a real contrast with what we saw in Uvalde. We spent a lot of time talking about the insufficient or incompetent police response in Uvalde. Here seems to be the exact opposite example, but tragically the same result you have you know, you have six uh, innocent victims um, who couldn't even be helped by this uh, very rapid, very professional, well-coordinated response. So I think to some degree it puts it shows the, the myth behind this idea that if we get more heavily armed and, you know, more police and be in more places quicker that we're going to stop this. Um, law enforcement alone cannot solve this problem. Yeah. More to discuss. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Juliet. We appreciate that. We're going to continue to follow this story throughout this program. We need to tell you that the former National Enquirer publisher, David Pecker, testifying again in the Trump hush money probe, where the case stands now. Plus, after weeks of massive demonstrations that we saw covering them closely here yesterday, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, says he will delay his judicial overhaul. But will that be enough for the protesters? We'll take you live to Jerusalem. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Uh, I don't know whether it helps or hurts. I can tell you, in my opinion, 
It's a new way of cheating on elections. It's called election interference. Uh, people are pleading with the prosecutor, don't do it, don't do it, it's wrong. Even Democrats, even people that traditionally are not exactly my fans are saying, don't do it. Because I didn't do anything wrong. I did nothing wrong. That's former President Trump in his own words weighing in on Fox News as he called the Manhattan District Attorney's probe into hush money payments, quote, a new way of cheating in elections. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. She's been covering this story. So we're hearing from Trump on this as we have been also watching the movements of this grand jury. We do know they met yesterday. They did hear from a witness, someone they've actually already heard from before. That's right, David Pecker. He is the former head of the company that publishes the National Enquirer. We know that he met with investigators uh, back in January, but he is really a key witness for prosecutors. Let's go all the way back to October 2016. At that time, a representative for Stormy Daniels reached out to AMI, saying that she was willing to go public with her story of an alleged affair. Of course, the former president uh, denies that affair. Pecker takes that information to then-candidates, then-personal attorney Michael Cohen, and they arranged for this $130,000 hush money payment. And that's what the grand jury is looking at right now, that payment. And it's interesting to hear the former president say that this, this investigation is the new way of stealing elections, because the prosecutor's office is amplifying the argument that, yes, this may seem like a smaller crime on the spectrum of things that he is being investigated for, but they argue that this was done to impact the outcome of the 2016 election. Remember, this is just a few weeks before before the election, we have the Access Hollywood tape, we have Hillary's emails. They argue that this could have potentially made a difference, and that's one of the reasons that they believe this is righteous. But that's an interesting argument that he's making in the Fox News interview. Issue. Would you, you call yourself a reformed attorney? Is yes, that recovering, recovering, recovering attorney. Fans, people who aren't even fans of mine are saying don't do it. Fans don't decide legal matters, right? It's up to the evidence and whoever's would possibly be on the grand jury and who the prosecutor is. That's who decides. Without a doubt. And many uh, fans, non-fans, whomever, were criticizing the district attorney for not bringing this case. So, right, he's in, a, he's in a tricky spot here. But as Caitlin mentioned, we know that they don't meet today. They are expected to meet tomorrow, but we don't know if they're going to hear evidence in the Trump investigation. We don't know if they're going to hear another witness. And we don't want to speculate because unexpected things can happen. Pecker's appearance comes exactly one week after Robert Costello appeared at the request of defense attorneys. And we know from our reporting that following his appearance attacking Michael Cohen's credibility, the prosecutors thought, hmm, we may need to bring someone in to rebut, which is a fancy way of saying clean up, uh, that testimony. And David Pecker is the exact right person to try to do that because only a few people really know how these hush money payments were arranged. What's not clear, though, is if he is the final witness. Yeah, the timing of a lot of this. I mean, it's obviously done in secret. And so I think everyone's like been watching this since Trump said he was going to be arrested, which, you know, we later learned he had no like inside indication of that. But how long have you and I been reporting? It's, 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 he's saying it's going to happen. I mean, I think you first reported it. He's saying it's going to happen on Tuesday, although there's no evidence. He hasn't been, you know, told. And then they said, well, it could possibly happen Wednesday. And then it could possibly happen at the end of the week. It pops. No one knows. No Even one knows when it happens. Also, it's been like a five-year investigation. Right. Exactly. We'll for see. conduct that was seven years old. So we'll just... see what the culmination of it is. Paula Reed, we know you will be tracking it. So thank you very much. Yes, I will. We're also this morning still tracking the devastating news that is coming out of Nashville. We're learning new details by the moment. After a shooter took the lives of six innocent people, three of them just nine years old, nine-year-old children, police are still searching to learn more about a motive as we are learning more weapons have now been found at the shooter's home. When you get that call that your child didn't make it or they were one of the, the victims of a mass shooting, 
It's the worst feeling ever. It's the most devastating, losing your child. It's devastating. No parent should have to go through this. Beautiful sound for such a tragedy there. Christian singer Lauren Daigle at a vigil in Nashville. This was last night after postponing her concert to host prayers for the victims of the Covenant School shooting. Nine-year-old students and three adults lost their lives, and police say the 28-year-old shooter was heavily armed, carrying three firearms, including two assault-style weapons. Overnight, police executed a search warrant at the shooter's home, where they seized a sawed-off shotgun and a second shotgun. We're bringing in now Stephen Katowski. He's a safety instruction and firearms reporter for TheReload.com. Stephen, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we just we got the new information on what they found um, overnight and the the um, weapons that were allegedly found at the scene. What more can you tell us about the weapons that the shooter had? Yeah, so the sh- the weapons that were recovered at the scene, there's actually seems to have been some sort of misunderstanding from the police about what they are. Uh, as you can see in these pictures here, you have a, a nine millimeter handgun, an AR-15 style pistol, and then a uh, sub-2000, which is a pistol-caliber carbine that shoots 9 millimeter as well. And then uh, what's interesting about those guns you mentioned being recovered at the shooter's home is uh, the sawed-off shotgun, because uh, if if it is indeed a shotgun that has a barrel shorter than 18 inches, uh, that would actually be subject to stricter federal regulations under the National Firearms Act. And Stephen, I mean, you're a firearms expert. That's why we have you on this morning in to talk about these things, because it is such an important part of this as we learn more about the shooting and what was brought to the actual school with the shooter. Three guns, we are told, two of them assault-style weapons, one handgun. What do you, I mean, that is a significant amount of firepower that this person had with them at the at the scene of this shooting. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I think it indicates that they were prepared to wreak a lot more havoc than they were able to actually carry out, thanks to relatively quick action from the police in this situation. You know, that 14-minute response time where police immediately engaged the shooter as they were still shooting indicates that this person was trying to kill more people and thankfully was was stopped at that point. Can we put the, um, the full screen of the guns back up? Um, and, and you can explain to us and why there why is such a different, why are you making such a distinction? Explain to us again what the guns were and you said one has that would be uh, much stricter had much more restrictions on it. Can you please explain that? I think it's important. Yeah, certainly. So uh, in these pictures, you can see one is a, a 9 millimeter handgun. Uh, the one on uh, at the other end is a 9 millimeter carbine. So it has a 16-inch barrel, but it, it shoots that same ammunition. And the one in the middle is a, an AR-15. Now, we don't have a picture of it, but you described that they'd recovered a sawed-off shotgun from what the police uh, have reported. That would be subject to a law called the National Firearms Act, where you'd have to have a registration with the ATF to own one of those firearms, and you'd have to pay a $200 tax as well. Uh, So that, potentially, if the shooter hadn't registered that firearm, if it is indeed a short barrel rifle, a shotgun, then, uh, you know, they, they would be breaking federal law in that situation, which could... Uh, you know, have a penalty of a, a federal felony up to 10 years in prison. It's it's be interesting to see more details about that firearm, even if it wasn't used in the actual attack. 
Yeah. And what we know is two were purchased legally. We don't know more about the third. Stephen, uh, thank you for sharing your expertise with us this morning. Philadelphia residents still worry if their tap water is safe to drink after a chemical spill in the Delaware River. Why they're skeptical about what officials are telling them. Out of the desire to prevent a rift in the nation, I decided to suspend the second and third reading of the law in this session of the Knesset to give time to try and reach a broad agreement. That is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announcing there that he has pressed pause on the, uh, the pause button on a plan to overhaul the country's judiciary. It follows weeks of mass demonstrations and growing international pressure. Labor leaders have called off the general strike that swept the country after Netanyahu fired his defense minister for speaking out against the legislation. But there are warnings of more strikes if Netanyahu proceeds as planned. CNN's Hadass Gold, live in Jerusalem for us. Hadass, hello to you. Uh, A bit quieter than when we saw you yesterday. What has the reaction been to (laughs) delaying the overhaul? Well, Don, Benjamin Netanyahu emphasized that this is a temporary pause, and he promised that these reforms, which I'll remind you would give the Israeli parliament unprecedented power over the Supreme Court to even possibly overturn Supreme Court decisions, that it will happen in one form or another when parliament comes back into session in just about a month. However, he did say that he is open to negotiations to bring the other side to the table and talks. And opposition leaders, they welcome the pause, but they're being cautious about it, circumspect. They say that they are happy to engage in negotiations if they are done correctly with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, as mediator. Now, we've heard no word yet of when these meetings will take place, but the next parliamentary session is supposed to happen in just about four weeks with the Passover holiday in the middle, so there's not a lot of time there. Meanwhile, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the far right-wing minister of national security, saying today that Netanyahu promised me that if we don't pass the reform through negotiation, we will pass it as it stands. Keep in mind that, that Itamar Ben-Gvir, as part of agreeing to this pause, was promised his own National Guard. That's a whole other issue in itself, that this right-wing minister was promised essentially his own National Guard. But meanwhile, the protesters, they say they are not stopping. They do not believe that Netanyahu will engage in real negotiations. They will continue protesting, they say, until these reforms are completely off the table. Don. Haraskol, thank you so much. All right, this morning as you're waking up, we are monitoring new developments and new details that we are learning out of Nashville after the school shooting that killed three nine-year-old children and three adults at an elementary school. But first, we're gonna talk about history in the making here as the first city in the U.S. passes a resolution that has greenlit reparations for black residents. We'll take you live to Evanston, Illinois. So Philadelphia officials say the city's tap water is safe to drink at least until this afternoon. Authorities say dozens of tests since the chemical spill on the Delaware River this weekend have shown no signs of contamination. The city is expected to provide more guidance later today. Seeing as Danny Freeman, live from Philadelphia this morning. Hello, Danny. Officials say that the water is safe to drink until this afternoon. And then what? 
Well, that's absolutely right, Don. The city of Philadelphia is trying to reassure residents that the water is absolutely safe. It is not contaminated at all. But we're not out of the woods yet because, as you noted, that guidance is only good until 3.30 p.m. this afternoon. We're still waiting for the answer of if the water is going to be safe to drink later this evening. Now, again, Don, this all started actually back on Friday when a chemical spill seeped into the Delaware River. It's a little bit north of the city of Philadelphia where that spill happened. Well, the Delaware is, of course, a big source of water for the city of Philadelphia. Then on Sunday, the city issued out a recommendation saying folks should go out and get bottled water out of an abundance of caution. Well, that led to an all-out run on water in supermarkets. We saw empty shelves. But then later that same afternoon on Sunday, they said, actually, you don't need to buy a bottle of water. The city water is absolutely safe to drink. Well, we pressed the city yesterday on some of those mixed messages and asking if that would lead to distrust. Well, the city officials acknowledged to us yesterday, they said that they may have over-communicated and elevated folks' sense of anxiety, but they said it was a difficult decision because the Alternative in this case was not saying enough if the emergency was greater or not saying anything at all. Don? And Stanley, do they believe what officials are saying to them? You know, it's really tough. Residents we spoke with all day yesterday, they were not taking the city's word for it. They were still going out buying bottled water. Take a listen to what one resident told us yesterday as he was carrying cases and cases of water to his car. Sound like they really don't know what they're talking about. You know, I don't trust the way they don't sound confident in what they're telling us. How could it be okay by 12 o'clock this afternoon? But it's not okay now. You know, or it might be okay six hours from now. You know, I just don't, it's too, I don't believe it. But again, the city is maintaining the water is absolutely safe at least until 3.30. And hopefully this morning we'll get more guidance on if the water will continue to be safe to drink after that. Don? All right. We'll be waiting and watching. Thank you, Danny Freeman. Also this morning, the central Gulf Coast and South Georgia are under flood threats after a series of thunderstorms battered the southeast on Monday that followed tornadoes that left a swath of destruction in the region over the weekend. An F3 tornado in Troop County, Georgia, had winds of 150 miles per hour. Our CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam is live in West Point, Georgia. I mean, Derek, we can see the enormity of the damage behind you. So not only are they dealing with the cleanup of the storms, now residents there have to be worried about flooding. Yeah, I think uh, just resonating with the residents here in Troop County is that they're fed up with what Mother Nature has thrown their way so far this season. Uh, You can see the damage from the tornado that occurred on Sunday morning here, uh, literally snapping trees, toppling uh, uh, homes and vehicles, tossing them in the air. And uh, believe it or not, this is the fourth tornado this year in Troop County in south central Georgia. That is incredible. In fact, uh, earlier this year, I was in LaGrange, not too far from here, reporting on uh, a similar uh, instance with a similar backdrop with destroyed homes with roofs completely ripped off. And I want to show you just some of the damage that's been left behind by this EF3 tornado. A lot of memories, children's shoes and a painting, uh, a, a, a painting kit. I have children, so this resonates with me as well to see uh, this type of material just scattered about the memories. Now, uh, this has been an unusual season so far. We're coming into the first weeks of spring, right? And we are already 150% above average in terms of our tornado count across the country. Uh, Scientists and people who study this are used to seeing tornadoes in Tornado Alley, right? The High Plains, Oklahoma, Texas, but that has not been the case this year. A lot of the storms have formed across the South 
and into the east. And unfortunately, we have yet another severe weather setup later this week as these storms that roll from the west coast causing the atmospheric rivers. They're going to carry that energy inland. They're going to encounter a warmer than average Gulf of Mexico, which is five degrees Fahrenheit above average for this time of year. And that is going to add fuel to the fire, allow for more thunderstorms Thursday and Friday. You can see across the nation's midsection, that's where we have our severe weather threat later this week. Surely we'll be covering those storms as well. Caitlin. Yeah, feels like the hits just keep on coming. Derek Van Dam, thank you for tracking for us. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So there's another classroom in America that's now a crime scene. We're talking about Nashville, mourning the deaths of six innocent victims. We have new video of the moment the shooter entered the school, what police seized at the shooter's home, and a new dispatch audio of how all of this unfolded. And we're also learning more about the nine-year-old children who were killed, including Hallie Scruggs that you see her here. This is a photo from 2019 with her father, all smiles. He is now the lead pastor at Covenant Church. Hallie was his only daughter. Be right back with more details on those we lost. In 2019, Evanston, Illinois, near Chicago, became the first city in the United States to pass a reparations resolution for black residents. At first, the program was only for mortgage assistance and renovations. Well, last night, that changed to include a cash option. CNN's Adrian Broadus has the story. This is the block that I grew up on. This was my place of refuge. It was our retreat, it was our sanctuary, it was our castle, it was home. And you didn't know this is the only place your family and families like yours could live? I didn't know. Robin Ruth Simmons grew up in Evanston's Fifth Ward. This is the red line map. Just north of Chicago, where banks in the city refused to give mortgage loans to black families until 1969. There were specific anti-black zoning laws and housing practices that um, are responsible for our racial segregation, um, not only our physical segregation, but our wealth gaps and home ownership gaps. That discriminatory housing policy led Simmons, a former alderwoman, to push for reparations, which is highlighted in the documentary, The Big Payback. Senator Mitch McConnell and others oppose. We've, you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. I don't know why they would be given more status than any other group of people. Under her guidance, in 2019, Evanston became the first city in the United States to award reparations for black residents who qualify. It is a $25,000 direct benefit to build wealth through home equity. Black residents that lived in Evanston during the period of harm, which was 1919 to 1969, or their direct descendants are eligible. And on Monday, the city council approved a cash option to the program with little fanfare. With nine voting in favor and none voting against, the motion carries. Initially, funds were restricted to mortgage assistance, renovations, or down payment on a home. I wasn't planning on buying a new home at my age, so I used it for renovations. Ramona Burton is among 14 who have received the $25,000 grant. I had eight windows replaced, a new roof, 
a chimney. So far, the city says it has only spent about $326,000 of the $10 million promised. We've been here a long time. Kimberly Holmes Ross is among 124 approved, but still waiting. My parents weren't even showed houses in this ward uh, in 1962. Everything was over in the fifth ward that they were shown and allowed to buy. So we're looking to either build a whole nother house or add on to our garage. It has taken longer um, than, than we expected. And some of those challenges have been really underestimating operationalizing the work. From Asheville, North Carolina to Detroit, Michigan, cities across the country are trying to repair harms caused by institutional racism. In San Francisco, a reparations committee is seeking payments proposed of $5 million to every eligible black resident. How will they pay each resident? I don't know. And, and so those are the challenges that we all have as municipalities. Meanwhile, back here in Evanston, a spokesperson with the city tells me more than 650 applications have been submitted, but the staff is still sorting through those applications to verify eligibility. Meanwhile, six people who did qualify died before receiving their payment. Don. All right. Adrian brought us in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you, Adrian. Appreciate that. And we're getting a ton of new information about the deadly shooting rampage in a school in Nashville. CNN This Morning continues right now. We're under a mass casualty alert. Multiple victims down. Three children and three adult staff members shot and killed at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. We have a manifesto. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. We have to step up and we have to stop this. You know, thoughts and prayers don't do anything. Massive protests and labor strikes across Israel led the country's battle prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, to delay a controversial package of judicial reforms. He hasn't said who's going to replace the defense minister, but he has said that anyone that takes that position needs to be loyal to him. There's a need to restore order in certain places. We can hope that it will be done uh, responsibly and not just for political reasons. A key player in the Trump hush money probe just met with a Manhattan grand jury investigating the former president. David Pecker's appearance at court Monday shrouded in secrecy. He can corroborate a lot of what Michael Cohen said, and it also could be a very strong response to Costello. People are pleading with the prosecutor, don't do it, don't do it, because I didn't do anything wrong. In France, demonstrators are continuing to protest the government's move to raise the retirement age. Many of them entered an airport in southwest France just a short while ago, setting off smoke bombs. Authorities say around 13,000 police officers will be deployed across the country. A lot of European countries, people are feeling the pinch economically. Gwyneth Paltrow's accuser took the stand in that speed collision trial. I got hit in my back so hard. Never been hit that hard. Paltrow describing a very different version of events, saying he plowed into her. I said, you skied directly into my effing back. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, and here we go again. Sad to say, covering the shooting, it's, heart it's heartbreaking. Hard to believe, but also not which is what's really Right on, hard. right on. I was just thinking about um, what started sort of this, you know, whole thing of us covering shootings. It was really Columbine. I remember it was April 20th, 1999. It seems like forever ago and then not so long ago. And then I, I cannot believe it has been 10 years since Newtown. And here we are. Nothing is 
happened. Nothing seems to change, except we keep getting more shooting, shootings and more students and innocent people just continue to die, children, children. So we are tracking, obviously, what we saw, what happened overnight, these developments in the Nashville school shooting. There is new video, new dispatch sound, new information about the minutes leading up to the murders of three children and three staff members inside their school. What you're about to see is disturbing. It is surveillance video that shows a shooter identified as a 28-year-old former student arriving at Covenant School, which is a small private Christian elementary school. The shooter had a handgun and two assault-style weapons blasting through the entryway glass doors. That was at 10, 10 a.m. and then climbing through. That was just one minute later. Okay, the shooter roamed the hallways, eventually taking six innocent lives. The first 911 call came in at 10, 13, and 14 minutes later, the shooter was dead. Also getting brand new information about the moments before the shooting from our affiliate WTVF. A former middle school teammate says that the shooter reached out to her on Instagram minutes before the rampage. The shooter wrote about a plan to die by suicide and said the classmate would see it on the news. Part of the message here, okay, and I quote, one day this will make more sense. I've left behind more than enough evidence behind, but something bad is about to happen, is end quote. <laughs> teammate says that she called police at 10.13 a.m. At that point, the shooting had already begun. The teammate will join us live in just minutes here on CNN This Morning. And as we're learning more about what happened before this, first, most importantly today, we want to remember the victims because they include the head of the school, a substitute teacher, a custodian, and three nine-year-old children, including Hallie Scruggs. You can see her here. This is a picture from 2019 with her dad, Chad Scruggs. He is now the lead pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Another victim, another nine-year-old victim, was Evelyn Dickhouse. The Tennessean reports that her sister, who is a fifth grader, cried at last night's vigil, saying, quote, I don't want to be an only child. CNN's Amara Walker and Carlos Suarez are both live in Nashville. Amara, we're going to start with you as you're covering the investigation parts of this story and what more we are learning about what happened before this shooting. We've now got this chilling new video showing the shooter arriving at the campus, which we now know the shooter knew very well. And then what goes from there? What do you see? Yeah, this video is chilling. So this is the Honda Fit that police say the shooter, Audrey Hale, was driving. In the video, you see this car rolling up to the parking lot of Covenant school here, which is also housed inside the Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church. What you see in the moments after are extremely disturbing, knowing that there are little children inside this school. And of course, about 40 to 50 staff members, about 200 students on any given day. This is the shooter shooting down those glass doors of the side entrance of the school. Then you see the shooter kick through that glass, climb in. The shooter's wearing a red hat, a white shirt, camouflage pants, holding up that AR-style rifle, roaming the hallways, opening doors, looking around. And at one point, you see Hale uh, pointing the rifle uh, in a direction and then walks off. That'll happen in a few seconds after uh, she walks, the, the shooter walks back into this hallway. Um, look, the, the, the investigation's focus right now obviously is the motive. You know, why did this shooter go on this deadly rampage that claimed six lives? Metro Nashville police say that they do have a theory as to why 
this person did uh, such a horrific thing. They're not revealing details of this theory. They did describe Audrey Hale as a 28-year-old female who identifies as transgender. And they did say that writings were found. Um, apparently, during a search of Hale's home, uh, where the shooter lived with the parents, uh, and also additional writing material found inside that Honda Fit. That should give some clues, perhaps, to the motive. Perhaps there are some grievances written down in there. But, of course, when this first happened, our main questions were, well, what is the shooter's connection to the school, if any? We know now, according to Nashville police, that Hale attended this school uh, at, at some time uh, and apparently knew the campus but still had a map uh, that detailed the entry points of uh, the campus as well. So this was calculated. It was thoroughly planned. You saw the pictures of those weapons, three weapons that Audrey Hale was carrying, um, the, the AR-style rifle, the AR, an AR-style handgun, and one handgun, and police saying that at least two of those weapons were legally purchased. But again, a lot of questions about the motive, and also, I'm sure, questions about whether or not this could have been prevented, knowing that, that there were calls made to police uh, on Monday morning prior, just minutes before this deadly rampage occurred. So that's the shooter. Let's talk about the victims, Carlos. Three children, three school staffers killed. What are you learning more about these victims? Uh, well, Don and uh, Caitlin, good morning. It's been an incredibly uh, difficult uh, day for this community out here. We were out here last night as the folks who started to show up here uh, to leave behind some teddy bears and flowers to remember the nine, uh, to remember the three nine-year-olds that were killed in the shooting. And as you mentioned, coming out to us this morning, we are learning uh, that one of the nine-year-olds that died uh, was the daughter of Chad Scruggs. He is the lead pastor here at the Covenant Presbyterian church. That, according to his former church, you're taking a look at a photo of young Haley along with her father there. Just an incredibly difficult photo to take a look at. As for the other victims in this shooting, we are talking about Evelyn Dickhouse, nine years old, Haley Scruggs, again, nine, William Kinney, nine. The three school staff members that were killed here have been identified as 61-year-old Cynthia Peak. She was a beloved substitute teacher here. 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz, she was the head of school here. And 61-year-old Mike Hill, who was a custodian at the school. It appears, according to authorities, uh, that uh, the shooter here uh, targeted these victims at random. We believe, at least according to some of the surveillance video we have seen, that it appears that the shooter may have encountered some of these folks as the shooter uh, walked and uh, up and down uh, the hallways at this school. Guys? Just immensely heartbreaking, and our thoughts are with all of their families and everyone in that community. Amra and Carlos, thank you for being there. Thank you very much for that. Um, we want to turn now to this new information that we have this morning of what happened in the moments before the mass shooting at that Nashville school. A former middle school classmate of the shooter says that Hale reached out to her 9.57 a.m., just minutes before entering that school. Avriana Patton says that Hale messaged her on Instagram that Hale planned to die by suicide and that she would see it on the news. A message stated, one day this will make more sense. I've left behind more than enough evidence behind but something bad is about to happen. And Avriana Patton joins us now. Avriana, thank you so much um, 
for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm still trying to process it all. I'm still trying to just, it's just, I'm just praying for my city. How did you know her? I, and listen, let, let me ask you this before, because I, there's this whole idea about how um, he or she identified. And police have been saying one thing. We have not confirmed since, did you know her well? I knew her well when we were kids, when we were younger. I didn't know the adult Audrey. I still addressed her as Audrey. Okay. I never addressed her as anything else um, but Audrey. Okay. And then, so you addressed her as Audrey. Do you know if she identified or he identified as something else? I've, I'm starting to see that um, on social media. I don't know that side of her. I, I, I'm just saying I don't. I resonated with Audrey. That's all I knew. But I, as I'm watching and I'm learning more and more. Yeah. That's, thank you very much. Just for clarification. And look, there's information still coming in yet to be confirmed. And so I just wanted to ask you about that since you had a relationship um, at one point. So walk us through what happened then. You saw you received these messages on Instagram from Hale. What happened? Mm-hmm. So I was at home. I received the Instagram DM. And when I initially saw it, I'm like, you know, I'm still working. I'm still like not really, you know, understanding what's happening right now. Um, and so I had screenshotted the uh, message to my dad. And I was like, this don't seem right. Should like, do, should I say something? And he immediately responded, yes. Um, and so I called him and I was like, you know, what, what, you know, who do I call? Like, what do I do? And then he was like, start with the uh, suicide prevention line. So I called them and they basically was like, was asking me, was I the person that needed the assistance? And I was like, no, but I got the Instagram, you know, maybe you guys can reach out. And they was just basically like, no, like the person has to call and then told me to call the deputy like the local deputy so um i googled that number and i called them and then they answered and basically was like call 862-8600 got them on the line and i was on hold for maybe like seven minutes and i finally got somebody on the phone and um i told her you know i was trying to tell her what was going on and they were like okay we'll send somebody over to you Nobody ever came. And then maybe I want to say maybe like an hour and a half later, I received another phone call and they were saying, OK, we're going to send somebody. And I was like, oh, well, I thought you guys were sending somebody initially. Um, so I ended up having to leave my home and they called me at 329 and was like, hey, we're here. You know, they're trying, you know, we're trying to, you know, get the messages, ping the um, try to ping the location or whatever they could do. Um, and so. Uh, when I called, I mean, when they called me, I wasn't at home and I was like, Hey, you know, I'll be there in about 10 minutes. By the time I got home, the officer had left and I called back and they said that they had closed out and they would have to reopen one. And I was just like, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, I was just trying to see if y'all could help. And all of this had transpired and, you know, the shooting and the time that you were trying to get that help. Why you, Adriana, if you said that you didn't have a relationship with, as you identify as her, uh, for a while, why you? Why would she, why would she send a message to you? Um, I 
you know, I am a avid, you know, a huge, I guess, or I'm an influencer here in Nashville. Um, I've, you know, worked, I worked in radio, uh, I do news. Um, she was most recently at my TV show. I mean, I, I to give you a, a direct answer, I'm asking God the same question. Yeah. Now she was in a, she's a former classmate, right? Is she, did she reach out to other classmates? And I'm, again, identifying her as she, because that's how you identified with her. Did she reach yes. out to other classmates? Um, I'm not sure if she reached out to other um, people prior. Uh, when I received it, I actually sent it to my dad. Then I sent it to another teammate of mine as well. Like, like, look, like what's going on? So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm trying to, I guess I could share the time um, timeline with you guys. Um, as far as like how, how that came out. So at 9.57, uh, I received a message from her. Um, and at 10.08, I sent a screenshot to my dad and uh, he instructed me to call the suicide prevention helpline. And then um, at 10.13, I called the Nashville Davidson County Sheriff's Office. And then at 10.14, I called the Nashville's non-emergency line and then at 329 is when they said that they were, yeah. they had came to my home to try to speak with me. When you found out what happened, Adriana, what did you think? I just, I, I just couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't affect to know that I did, you know, I tried to reach out, you know, not even knowing that it was her. I, I, I didn't, I just... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where she, where she was, you know, what, what she was dealing with. I just, I don't know. Like, yeah. And you haven't been able to speak to anyone who knew a family member or anything, right? No, I haven't spoken to anyone of her family. Um, the whole world is watching Nashville today and watching the reaction to what's going on. What do you say? Just keep praying for us. And, you know, I'm, you know, I just want a solution, a better way, some better protocol to, you know, to um, avoid this in the future. You know, I just want to see if it's something that we can do as a community, as a city to avoid this, you know, in the future. But just please just keep praying for us because that's, that's literally how we can do for, you know, each other. Are you okay? I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm numb right now. You know, I'm just, I'm just like, wow, you know, my heart goes out to the families um, who were involved in this, in this tragedy, you know, I, I wouldn't even know, you know, I'm, my nephew was in at Hillsborough down the street. So it's just like, you know, just, just keep praying. Well, listen, you're a very strong person to do this. Um, and you did what you could. And so we appreciate you joining us and we're all thinking about you. Thank you so much. You take care of yourself. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Adriana Patton. Um, a former teammate and classmate of the shooter. It's just, she says she's numb.
I mean, she she absolutely did what she could, though. And yeah. I think that's important to note here. Yeah, but we got to do something about this. We can't just keep talking about it, not doing anything, and then you know politicians going back and forth about. But something has to be done, and it's got to stop being politicized when it comes to guns. Of course, guns are an issue. Of course, guns are an issue. Mental health is an issue. Obviously, someone would not do something like this if they did not have a mental health issue. But guess what? They wouldn't do something like this if they didn't have access to guns as well. So we've got to be realistic about it. And we have to stop politicizing it because more young people, more people in general will die. And especially it's so tragic when you have the young people. But these are the victims that when you talk about Evelyn Dickhouse, Hallie Scruggs, William Kinney, Cynthia Peaks, Catherine Kuntz, Mike Hill, that entire community victimized. And we have to do something about it. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I was involved in several of these um, catch and kill episodes. But these catch and kill scenarios existed between David Pecker and Mr. Trump long before I started working for him in 2007. That was Michael Cohen testifying on Capitol Hill back in 2019, now with a potential indictment of his former client, former boss, former President Trump looming. David Pecker, who is one of the key players in this entire Stormy Daniels hush money case, testified for 90 minutes before the Manhattan grand jury on Monday. That is according to a source familiar with the proceeding. Pecker is the former publisher, of course, of the National Enquirer. He's a longtime Trump ally who helped broker the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. Back in 2018, Pecker's company, American Media Inc., admitted that it did participate in what Cohen was referring to there, these catch-and-kill schemes to suppress damaging stories about Trump. Pecker has been granted immunity in the federal investigation in return for his grand jury testimony. He has now testified twice. Joining us now to talk about this is former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and former deputy attorney general for New York, Donya Perry, who previously represented Michael Cohen. All of those qualifications, of course, make you the perfect person to weigh in on this. You think it's significant that David Pecker went and testified for a second time yesterday. What do you think the significance of that is? I do. He had been one of the first witnesses in this grand jury back in January. No doubt provided substantive testimony about the machinations between himself and Cohen, members of the campaign team. So why did they bring him back is obviously the question on everyone's mind. And my assumption, based on years of experience, is that it was as a rebuttal witness following uh, Cohen's testimony, uh, Robert Costello, a former attorney for Cohen, testified. You think it's a rebuttal to Bob Costello? That's what I'm assuming. What's interesting there is that the grand jury, um, the prosecutors who were presenting before the grand jury had Michael Cohen ready and available outside the grand jury to rebut Bob Costello, but decided not to. But there must have been some questions asked by the grand jurors that these prosecutors decided best to answer them before they seek an indictment. And so they brought uh, Mr. Pecker back in. How important do you think his testimony is? I think it's pretty critical. Um, He was one of the few guys in the room when this all happened. And he can testify that, in fact, and and already Mm -hmm. has in a way, through his immunity agreement, through the non-prosecution agreement, that... Mr. Trump knew what this was for, and the purpose was for a workaround on the campaign finance laws, that this 
these catch and kill programs and this hush money, these hush money payments were made with the express purpose of influencing the campaign. So that's certainly key testimony in this case that would bump this, uh, this matter up from a misdemeanor to a felony. And so what we're seeing here with, and I should note, Trump was on Fox News last night. He did an interview with Sean Hannity. He was talking about Bob Costello, saying that he didn't know him, but essentially estimating in his view, which he doesn't know what Bob Costello said exactly either, is that Costello's testimony was devastating to what Michael Cohen has said, essentially pitting these people against each other. We all know Michael Cohen is a questionable witness when it comes to his credibility, but you believe all of this signals, when we put all of this together, that this is coming to an end, that this probe is coming to an end. I think this was almost certainly the last nail in the coffin. When the prosecution provides an opportunity for the defendant to provide a defense witness, um, that's usually the end of it. They have the opportunity, they being the prosecutors, are able to call a rebuttal witness, and that's really it. There's nothing more that needs to happen. So I do think the prosecutors will put this to a vote. You know, it's anyone's guess when. The grand jury is meeting tomorrow, could be tomorrow, because there's really nothing more to do. So as long as they have a quorum of 16 grand jurors tomorrow, they can and I believe likely will put that to a vote. The only caveat to that is, of course, the unusual logistics that are involved in indicting and arraigning, arresting a former president and the security issues that go with that in large part of Trump's own doing. But so I think as soon as they can arrange whether an arrest or it seems self-surrender, I think that this indictment will come down. You um, uh, you say final nail in the coffin. It sounds ominous. What do you what do you mean by that? These prosecutors would not be running through all these paces, calling in a rebuttal witness if they didn't have some confidence in their case, if they were not going to put it to a vote. And a New York grand jury is composed of 23 ordinary citizens. Only 16 of them are necessary for a quorum, in other words, in order to vote. And only 12 of them um, must vote to indict, to return a true bill. So that's not a very high standard. And here it's a pretty one-sided, this is by law, it's a pretty one-sided presentation generally where the prosecutor puts on their best case. I think in this case, they put in a defense witness at the defendant's or the target's request. And so they, they, you know, it's a little more nuanced than usual, but you know, everyone's familiar with the expression that you know, prosecutors could indict a hand sandwich. <laughs> that's, that's not too far from the truth. It's quite, it's quite simple. Um, you know, to to get a true bill. Um, And so I think all signs point to that. If a prosecutor has some premonition, some sense, whether from juries, the jurors' questions, or um, because the case didn't come in right, they don't have to put it to a vote. They can actually try and put in more evidence. So that is why, you know, there are a bunch of baked-in reasons why it's, it's, it's quite an easy matter to have a, a true bail returned. Yeah, the question is about actually securing a conviction. So we'll follow that closely. Danya, thank you for your insight on such an important thing. I learned a lot. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Up next, we're going to take you back to Nashville, where our coverage is focused this morning. It is a scene of yet another deadly mass shooting in America, a school shooting at that. We're going to talk to a council member about how her community is coping. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. We have more now on our top story. Three students and three employees of a private Christian elementary school in Nashville were shot and killed on Monday. This photo really says it all. Look at it right there. 
the face of anguish of a little girl on her school bus after unspeakable violence reached her school, something we have seen all too often in this country. This is what we know at this hour. The shooter was a 28-year-old former student of the school. Police described them as a female-to-male transgender person. The shooter had detailed maps of the school, including entry points to the building. Police say the shooter had a handgun and two AR-style weapons, one a rifle and an AR-style pistol. Police also have writings from the shooter they are reviewing right now. A newly obtained surveillance video shows the attacker shooting through the doors to enter the school, then roaming around the halls. Police killed the shooter 14 minutes after the first 911 call. I want to bring in now Nashville Council Member at Large, Sharon Hurt. Councilwoman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you. Now, I, listen, I know it's tough. I hate to ask people how they're doing because I know it's awful. But you went right to the elementary school. Uh, you went right to speak to people and to help others here. And I'm sure others are joining in. But it's got to be tough. It absolutely is. I am just heartbroken, sad, and outraged at the same time. Pretty much the same thing that I saw yesterday uh, when I was there with those who were school, the parents, the teachers, friends, family, just so many. This is just just so unfortunate and tragic. And you were at that reunification center where so many of these terrified families and parents and loved ones were going to make sure you know it wasn't their child that was the one that was killed and unfortunately i mean we we've been talking about these three nine-year-olds and the three others who were who were killed yesterday what did you see when you were there at the reunification center oh it was just so much emotion on on one side it was uh tears and crying and uh, one holding each other. Uh, then on the other side, I saw people who were outraged and vowing to go to the governor's office and saying that we've got to do something about this. When en- is enough enough? I, I mean, we have uh, legislators who are doing the opposite of providing protection and safety for our children, for our residents, something that they vowed that they would do. Speak- it's, just, it's just so heartbreaking. Speaking of that, yesterday, uh, I'm sh- we all heard the president call on Congress to pass assault weapons ban. What do you think our country needs? Is that, is that part of it? Is that what you want? Oh, absolutely. Just some common sense laws. Every mass shooting that we've had has participated in with an assault rifle. I I just don't understand how do we sell assault rifles to um, an ordinary common person? Those are for wars. And and as our uh, shooter yesterday was in camouflage as if they were going to war. Should we not monitor them? Something has to happen. We've got to stop talking, but we've got to do something about these things. And common law, common sense laws are absolutely necessary. We've got to make sure that the NRA lobbyists uh, are, are not directing what happens in our cities and our states. 
for for our legislators to lower the age when someone can buy a gun to pass laws that you no longer have to have a permit. It's like we want that the intent is to kill. And, and that has to stop. When are we going to get angry enough to do something? Yeah, we heard those calls from President Biden, but I mean, the reality on the ground in Washington is Congress is divided as ever and unlikely to, to pass anything. Uh, Councilwoman Cheryl Sharon Hurt, thank you very much. I know that that was a lot for you to, to see yesterday. I know we'll be having this conversation a lot going forward. So thank you for your time this morning and for joining us. Well, let me just say, I just left the National League of Cities and they were talking about this. We've got to do something. Uh, you're right about that. Thank you, Councilwoman. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So straight ahead, uh, we're going to speak to the mayor of Nashville, get reaction from the White House when the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, joins us live. Stay with us. Are you looking at live pictures from our affiliate WZTV? That is Nashville there. And we're following new developments in the school shooting in that city. We're going to talk to the White House press secretary in just moments, as well as the Nashville mayor. So make sure you stick around for that. And while we wait for that, first we're tracking other international developments. Prince Harry is back in a London courtroom this morning. You can see images here on the ground in London. It's a two a day two of a case against the Daily Mail publisher, Associated Newspapers. Prince Harry and Elton John are part of a larger group of high-profile figures who claim that the media company engaged in what they call, quote, abhorrent criminal activity and gross breaches of privacy in its efforts to obtain dirt on celebrities. CNN's Max Foster joins us now live from London. Max, I mean, we're seeing the case that they're making. The question, I think, is realistically, are they going to be successful? Is this going to change anything? I mean, we know how notorious the media is in London. This is very much part of the story, particularly for Prince Harry, I think. The reason he's going to court every day, as you say, he's there again today, is to show his support for this case. Seven high-profile individuals expose the practices that he says he's been exposed to all of his life and hoping to show that other people, if they suffered in the same way, will get some sort of justice here. So uh, he's accusing, along with these seven others, including Elton John and Liz Hurley, for example, uh, the Associated Newspapers of invading his privacy in a major way, paying off police to get information, getting medical information, uh, planting bugs, tapping phones as well. And Harry uh, released a statement of our uh, lawyers yesterday uh, saying that the papers had effectively uh, deprived him of important aspects of his teenage years. These were stories about his girlfriends, for example, getting into newspapers. He thought his friends were leaking those stories and he um, stopped speaking to them, pushed them out of his life. And the whole time, he says, it was actually bugs and phone tapping that the, was the source of those stories. Uh, Association newspapers, just uh, uh, while I'm here, uh, of course, denying all of this, this is just a preliminary hearing, and the judge will decide whether or not it'll go to trial. So we find out on Thursday. Mm -hmm. no, we'll could have major implications. Major implications. Thank you, Max Foster. Appreciate that. So the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying he is moving forward on legislation to ban TikTok, but will other lawmakers get on board? And our coverage continues of the mass shooting at a Nashville elementary school. How the White House is responding this morning. And Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is standing by. There she is on the White House lawn. That's next. CNN's special live coverage continues in moments. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have to do more to protect our schools so they aren't turned into prisons. You know, uh, the shooter in this situation reportedly had two assault weapons and a pistol, two AK-47. So I call on Congress again to pass my assault weapons ban. It's about time that we begin to make some more progress. That was President Biden's initial reaction to what we are seeing happen out of Nashville. Democrats is re- are renewing their push to ramp up gun reform following that school shooting. We should note, though, of course, the dynamics on Capitol Hill. Texas Senator John Cornyn, who was actually a key negotiator on the gun safety measure that was passed last year, says he believes the Republicans are running out of runway, that there's not much room left when it comes to this. He told CNN's Monty Raju, quote, I would say we've gone about as far as we can go unless somebody identifies some area that we didn't address. But the president just keeps coming back to the same old tired talking points. Cornyn said President Biden is not offering any new solutions or ideas. If he does, I think we should consider them. But so far, I have not heard anything. So joining us now for reaction to those comments and more, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, thank you so much for being here this morning. We'll get to Senator Cornyn's comments in a moment. But I know President Biden has spoken to the governor of Tennessee, the mayor of Nashville. What did he tell them? Well, per usual, when the president has these very difficult conversation, uh, he shares uh, his heartfelt um, uh, sadness to what they're going through, uh, offers up assistance in any way that we can uh, as the investigations go through. Uh, but uh, it is always a difficult conversation, as you know. The president is known to be a consoler in chief, and he takes that very seriously. And I just want to add, as, as we're talking about this, uh, at the top here, our hearts go out to the families uh, and the friends of, 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 uh, of these families who lost loved ones. Uh, again, another devastating, heartbreaking day that we saw. At this time, it happened in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. And again, our message here is very, very clear. Enough is enough. We need to see action in Congress. Well, the president called for that action yesterday, calling on them to pass the assault weapons ban that he wants to see. But, Kareen, you know Washington as well as I do. You know that right now that is more unlikely than ever to happen because, I mean, when Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress, nothing was passed so it's incredibly unlikely it's going to happen now with Republicans in charge of the House. Well, look, what we saw yesterday was an, a family's worst nightmare, which is what the president said, a family's worst nightmare. And when you hear when you hear elected officials say it's another talking point when the president is saying that we need to do more, that's actually devastating to hear as well, because that's what you're also saying to those families who lost loved ones, to those parents who lost three nine-year-olds They lost their kids yesterday, and that's what we're saying. We should not be saying there's nothing else to do. We should be trying to figure out what else there can be be to do. And let me just say this really quickly, Caitlin. This is a president that has taken more executive actions than any president in the first two years of his administration, making sure that we deal with this real uh, epidemic of gun violence that we're seeing in our streets, that we're seeing in our schools, that we're seeing in grocery stores, that should not be happening. These weapons of war that are in those very places churches. That's what we're seeing. And so the president's going to continue to speak out. He just did an executive action earlier this month. And just not forget, we, for the first time in 30 years, we saw the Safe Communities Act put into place. The president signed that. This is an act that he pushed forward, a bipartisan piece of legislation that he signed this past summer. And that is what we want to continue to see. As you know, Caitlin, we can't do this alone. The president can't do this alone. That's how government works. 
Congress needs to take legislative action. That's what the president said at the State of the Union, and that's what the president said yesterday. John Cornyn, you know, as you know, is a member of Senate GOP leadership. He was a key negotiator on that gun safety package that was passed last year. He's the one who is saying here that we, referring to Congress, have gone as far as we can go. Are you saying that, that he's wrong when he says that? We're saying that there's more that can be done. And look, we appreciate the bipartisanship that we saw on the Safe, Safer Communities Act. That was something that was a step forward. And again, we worked very closely with those members, but we need to do more, Caitlin. We saw what just what happened just yesterday, less than 24 hours ago. We have to do more. We have to make sure there are common sense gun safety laws. We have to make sure that we ban assault weapons. That is something that we saw 30 years ago when the president was a senator and he led that effort. And we saw, we saw gun violence go down because of the actions that he took. Once that, once that, once that uh, ban uh, sunset, we saw, we saw gun violence go up almost three times. So we know what works. We know what can be done here. And so we cannot accept this anymore, Caitlin. This is, this is not acceptable. Enough is enough. We need to take action. And again, the president has taken historic executive actions. Now it's time for Congress to act and continue to act to build on what they were able to do over the summer. Given that, do you think President Biden will personally call any of these congressional Republicans with that message? Well, look, the president said that message yesterday. He said it at the State of the Union. He said it many times before at the bully pulpit. But not only that, we have, we have been working with uh, congressional members on this for some time, having conversations with their staff, having conversations directly with those members. So this is not something that is just happening today, Caitlin, or beyond today. This is something that we've been talking about for some time. Again, we have, it is time to show some courage here. It is time for Republicans in Congress to show some Congress courage and to answer to these parents, to these families. There's a poll out there, believe a political poll, 63% of Americans, that's majority of Americans, want to see action on gun violence, want to see measures that is going to keep their families and their communities safe. That's majority of Americans. The things that I'm laying out, the assault bans weapons, uh, the assault, uh, abandoning assault assault weapons, that is something that majority of Americans want to see. So that's who they're working for. That's who they need to speak to and answer to. But since the reality on the ground in Washington is that right now that is not going to pass, it's just not. That's just what you see on Capitol Hill. Are there any other executive orders in the pipeline, anything that the White House is considering taking next? Well, like I said, the president has taken historic actions, historic executive actions. He just did one recently earlier this month when we went out west and we announced uh, we went to, to go to Monterey Park, another community that was riddled with violence, gun violence. When the president went there to uh, to announce uh, to announce his his latest executive action and also, again, be a consoler in chief to that community. So we're always going to look for other actions that we can take. But how government works, Caitlin, and you know this very well, having covered the White House, having covered the Hill, we, we cannot do this alone. We need, we need Congress to act. We need them to build on what we saw them do with this bipartisan action that the president signed, the Safer Communities Act, over the summer. We need to build on that. We have to, have to ban assault rifles. Karine Jean-Pierre from the White House, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. And in just moments, we're going to be joined by one of those officials in Tennessee that President Biden spoke with last night. That's the mayor of Nashville, John Cooper.
Caitlin, thank you very much. This morning, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says lawmakers will be moving forward with controversial TikTok legislation as calls to ban the app in the U.S. are growing. Last week, lawmakers from both parties grilled TikTok CEO for about five hours over national security concerns. He denied that the app shares Americans' data with the Chinese government. Sinan Sunland Sarfati joins us now with more. Sunland, good morning to you. How far could this legislation go? Well, interestingly here, Don, um, the speaker did not specify what specific piece of legislation he's referring to. And there are many competing proposals on Capitol Hill, including potentially forcing the sale of the company to an all-out ban that many lawmakers have been talking about. But notably, the speaker in the past, he has said he would support a ban on the company. And this tweet that he sent out really increasing the urgency that he clearly wants to bring after that uh, committee hearing last week, the, the CEO McCarthy saying, it's very concerning that the CEO of TikTok can't be honest and admit what we already know to be true. China has access to TikTok user data. The House will be moving forward with legislation to protect Americans from the technological tentacles of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, there is, of course, bipartisan concern and bipartisan calls for action that something significant action needs to be done to change the way this company operates. The question, of, of course, Don, is what form does that ultimately take? And there certainly will be a lot of debate on Capitol Hill. For example, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez sending out a TikTok video saying that she believes a ban would put the cart before the horse here, and she supports rather um, a larger issue of looking into whole-scale data privacy issues. All right, Sunland, we'll be watching. Thank you very much for that. Thanks. CNN This Morning continues right now. I saw uh, kids coming out, holding hand in hand. I saw officers coming out, bleeding. Uh, I saw uh, just raw emotion. I had officers tell me they weren't sure if they could do this anymore after carrying kids wow. out of the building. Uh, it was just a, mm. it was a tough, uh, tough scene. That is the Nashville police chief weighing in on the devastating scene that we all saw yesterday coming out of Nashville. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off, Don and I are here. As you heard there from the police chief, he's describing that horrifying scene it played out at an elementary school in his city yesterday where three nine-year-olds and three school staffers were murdered. Overnight, police released new video, disturbing video of the shooter entering the school. And we have new information just into CNN that the shooter had actually reached out to someone on Instagram moments before. Also this, a crucial witness in the Donald Trump hush money case testifies again David Pecker, the former publisher of the National Enquirer, appeared before the grand jury for the second time. Those jurors set to meet again tomorrow. And at least 39 people have been killed in a fire that swept through a migrant detention center in Mexico. We have new details coming in. But we start this morning tracking the several overnight developments as we are getting new details out of Nashville where that school shooting took place, including this surveillance video from inside the school and new information about the minutes leading up to the murders of three nine-year-old children and three school staff members. I want you to know that what you're about to see is disturbing. This is the shooter pulling into the parking lot from surveillance video, now been identified as a 28-year-old former student of the school arriving at Covenant School. It's a small private Christian elementary school, only about 200 students total. The shooter had a handgun and two assault-style weapons, we were told, blasting the way through the entry glass doors at 10.10 10 a.m., 
then climbing through one minute later. The shooter, as you can see on the video, roamed the hallways, eventually taking six innocent lives. The first 911 call came in at 10.13 a.m. 14 minutes later, the shooter was dead. We're also getting brand new information about the moments before the shooting. A former middle school classmate says the shooter reached out to her on Instagram minutes before the rampage, writing, one day this will make more sense. I've left behind more than enough evidence behind, but something bad is about to happen. Adriana Patton joined us just moments ago telling us what she thought when she got those messages. I just, I, I just couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't affect to know that I did, you know, I tried to reach out, you know, not even knowing that it was her. I, I, I didn't, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where she, where she was, you know, what, what she was dealing with. I just, I don't know. A lot of questions still remain this morning about the shooter, but first, and most importantly, we wanted to focus on the victims. 61-year-old Cynthia Peake was a beloved substitute teacher. Six-year-old Catherine Kuntz was the head of the school. 61-year-old Mike Hill, a custodian. The young victims include nine-year-olds, all three of them. William Kinney, Hallie Scruggs, who you can see here pictured with her father. He's actually the lead pastor at Covenant Church. This is a photo of them from 2019. And Evelyn Dickhouse. The Tennessean reports that her sister, a fifth grader, cried at last night's vigil, saying, quote, I don't want to be an only child. CNN's Amara Walker is in Nashville covering all of this. Amara, I mean, the more we are learning this morning about these details and about what led up to this and what happened in the moments before this tragic shooting took place. There is so much more that we're learning. And look, the reality is that there are six families waking up this morning here in Nashville without their children and without their loved ones. This is what they're going to have to go through for the rest of their lives. Um, in the meantime, here uh, at Covenant School, the investigation continues. It will be the second day police will be arriving to process what is now a crime scene. I don't know how somebody could go through with doing something like that and especially children like just it's disgusting and I yeah I just I have no words this morning another community is in mourning after what police are calling a targeted attack by 28 year old Audrey Hale a former student who showed up on campus to execute a pre-written plan and it indicates that there was going to be uh, shootings at multiple locations uh, and um, and the school was one of them. There was actually a map uh, of the school detailing surveillance uh, entry points and how this was going to be carried out on this day. Metro Nashville Police releasing more than two minutes of surveillance video showing the moment Hale arrived on campus. In the video, Hale is seen driving through the parking lot of the Covenant School in a silver Honda Fit. The security camera footage then cuts to video of Hale opening fire on glass double doors at an entrance of the school before climbing in. As the video continues, you see Hale start roaming the hallways. Police say Hale had three weapons, an AR-style rifle, an AR-style pistol, and a handgun, along with significant ammunition. Police say they believe two of those weapons may have been obtained legally. Officers say when they arrived on scene, Hale fired on them from a second-story window, one patrol car taking a bullet to the windshield. 
Police say two officers confronted Hale on the second floor and Hale was killed. During the shooting, Avery Myrick was texting with her mother, a teacher at the school. I texted her and I said just like what was going on. She said she was hiding in the closet and that there was shooting all over. She later spoke to her mother by phone and learned she was safe. This morning, we're learning more about the victims. The three nine-year-olds who were killed, Evelyn Dickhouse, William Kenny, Hallie Scruggs. Also killed 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz, who, according to the school's website, was the head of the school. Police also identifying 61-year-old Mike Hill, a custodian, and 61-year-old Cynthia Peake, a substitute teacher. Police continue to investigate a motive, but say they have a theory. There's some belief that there was some resentment for having to go to that school. Uh, don't have all the details of that just yet. And, uh, and that's why this incident occurred. So, of course, motive is the big question. Why would anyone uh, go on such a deadly shooting rampage? Metro Nashville police also said that the shooter scouted a second location, uh, but decided against it because there was too much security there and hence chose the Covenant School, this private Christian school. Uh, we learned that there was and is no uh, school resource officer or security guards on campus because this is housed inside a church. Perhaps questions will be raised on whether or not that policy needs to be changed. Yeah, definitely you. a lot of questions that we still have. Emerald Walker, Nat in Nashville, thank you very much. So the police response in Nashville stands in stark contrast to what happened last year in Uvalde, Texas. Uvalde law enforcement waited more than an hour to confront the gunman. In Nashville, the response took just 14 minutes from when the first 911 call was placed to the shooter being killed. And police say five officers responded after the 911 call came in at 10.13 a.m. Central Time. As they arrived, they said the shooter fired on them from a second floor window. Two officers then made it to the second floor where they shot and killed the shooter at 10.27 a.m. 14 minutes, 14 minutes. In both Uvalde and in Nashville, the shooter entered through a side door, and Uvalde police say that the door was unlocked. CNN has identified the side entrance that the shooter in Nashville used. It's on the west side of the building. It is unknown if the door was locked or not, but as you'll see here in this surveillance video, it didn't matter, right? didn't matter. The shooter just fired their way right through two glass doors. CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent is Shimon Prokopez. Shimon joins us now. He won the Poker Award, as a matter of fact, for his reporting in Uvalde. Shimon, um, good morning to you. You were actually in Uvalde yesterday. You were speaking to parents about the prospect of another shooting, and then this happened in Nashville. What was the reaction? Yeah, I was just finishing up an interview with uh, parents of a uh, 10-year-old girl who was killed in Uvalde, and we were talking about what do you say to family members who go through something like this? Because it's going to happen again. And sure enough, as we were wrapping up the interview, we finished the interview, the mom turns to me and says, oh, my God, there's been another shooting. And the pain all over her face. I mean, these families in Uvalde certainly um, are suffering, and they will suffer for the rest of their lives. And they are fighting for justice. They are fighting for reforms, you know, gun reform. And to see another shooting like this happen, uh, you know, it again. they are reliving it again. Um, another parent texted me whose daughter, her daughter survived. She's not sending her back to school. She's too scared to send oh. her back to school because she's afraid of the security and whether there is enough security at schools. She was thinking about sending her to private school. She said to me, well, this happened in a private school, right? I said, yeah. She said, well, 
now I'm not sending my daughter to private school. So there are families all across the country that are really afraid to send their kids to school because, you know, one of the parents said to me yesterday, it's one thing when you, you leave your kid to go to school, you have no control over them. You drop them off, you leave, and you expect them to be safe. If you go into a supermarket, you're there with your kid, you can protect your kid if there's a shooting in a supermarket or somewhere else. You have no protection. For, you can't protect your own kid. And this is something that many of the parents in Uvalde are living with, the fact that they couldn't do anything to save their kids. And now many of the families here in Nashville are going to have to deal with what could they have done possibly different to try and save their kids to prevent this from happening. You know, you talk about the door, you talk about guns, you talk about mental health, right? Clearly something needs to be done. And these families realize this in Uvalde. Um, and just with the ease in which this shooter was able to get inside the school, I mean, that to me uh, is certainly very striking. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Because I know one thing that we have also talked about is the police response. The fact that the first call and when the shooter was killed was 14 minutes had elapsed between that. But the door... My mom is a school teacher, a fourth grade teacher. Her classroom is right by a door. And after Uvalde, we talked about this and the precautions that they take and locking the doors. But the door was locked here. It made no difference. It made no difference because of the ease of which uh, the shooter was able to shoot through the glass. You know, schools in many ways are now kind of soft targets. You know, after 9-11, there was all this security that went into infrastructure and buildings to prevent against terrorism. Um, you know, schools now are a target, a big target for, for shooters, for killers. Uh, and they study, you know, this shooter here, we have evidence, did surveillance, knew where to go, knew where they could possibly get in with ease. And they found that door. Um, the other thing I think with this is that we need to learn more about the shooter, right? There's certainly uh, indications that there are uh, this trail of warning signs with this shooter. So hopefully today the police can release more information, more about the timeline, the 14 minutes. Yeah, it sounds fast. But it's really not that fast. You know, a lot of times these things are over in three, four, five, six minutes. So I think we need to know more from the police on the timeline and go back and look more on what was going on in the shooter's life at the time. It's an interesting time that we're in when you were saying that your mom's classroom being near a door. And when I was in school, I'm sure when you were in school, the windows were open, the doors were open. You know what I mean? It's just a whole different It's crazy to think that we need to fortify schools, right? No one wants to think that. And you get attacked for saying that maybe, like, what, are we supposed to make schools into prisons? No, but this is something that I think... Talk, go spend a year in Uvalde, as I have. They have built fences, like massive fences around the schools just so that parents can feel feel safe about sending their kids to school. It's the world we live in. shouldn't be this way. It's the world we live in. And the surveillance video from both what happened in Uvalde and what we're seeing this morning is so disturbing. Sean, don't, we want you to keep you around us. Obviously, you are such an expert on this and you've done so much reporting on this. We want to broaden out this conversation this morning and talk more about, you know, the aftermath of this. Yeah, let's do that. Sissy Goff Goff is here. She is a director of child and adolescent counseling at Daystar Counseling uh, Ministries in Nashville. And we're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us this morning, Ms. Goff. You rushed to the church yesterday where parents and children were reunited uh, to volunteer your time. How is this tragedy affecting the community there? Well, obviously, everyone is just devastated. This is a very sweet school, a lot of families that care so much for each other. I was standing next to a friend yesterday whose kids are in the school, and she said, we're a family at Covenant, and I think they're feeling the reverberations of that. 
One thing that we're so struck by, I mean, you look at the front page of the, New York, of the Washington Post today, and it's this, this young child who's being driven away from the school on a school bus. It's just this anguished image that we are seeing. And I think the question that so many parents have this morning is, A, how, to, how they feel dropping their own children off at school, as Shimon is just talking about, but yes. also if their child was there, what, they, what do you even say to your child as a parent who's waking up this morning in Nashville? I love that you're asking that because I think it's so important. I would say, first of all, as grownups, we really have got to manage our own anxiety because kids pick up on it. And so that would be first. And second, kids have this amazing innate ability that they ask for the information that they're ready for. So we want to have really short, factual statements. Be the source where you're the one telling them, not someone else, and then really let them lead the conversation. So say your two to three sentence and let them ask the next question. And then answer that age appropriately, honestly, and let them ask again. You were at the uh, reunification center. Can you tell us what some of the questions were, how you helped in counseling? Can you talk to us about that, please? Yes. Most parents were just asking exactly what you all just asked. How do I talk to my kids? What do I say? How do I help? And then I got, yes. What, can, can you talk to us also about, um, listen, obviously the people who are affected most by this are the families who are involved, but really the whole country is yes. traumatized, re-traumatized every time something like this happens. For the broader audience watching now, they're saying, my gosh, how, you know, how much do we have to deal with this? As, as you know, Caitlin was talking about the picture from the Washington Post, it reminded me of images of seeing, you know, hearses going by, families in there, young kids, and everyone is just sort of re-traumatized over and over and over again. How much more can any of us take with this? I I don't have an answer to that. I wish I did. I, I wish none of it. I wish we would never have to go through this again. And I think we certainly need to circle up and be near kids and give as much support and as much opportunity for them to process their emotions as we can and be safe, steady sources of support in the midst of that. Yeah, it's just insane that you have to even think about how to talk to to children about that. Sissy, thank you for joining us from Nashville. You have a unique perspective on this. You were there at the Reunification Center. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you to Shimon for, for what you, your perspective on this and what these families are going yeah, through. Yeah, and of course our hearts go out to the families. Those are the, the folks who are, are um, dealing mm-hmm. with it. Evelyn Dickhouse, nine years old. Hallie Scruggs, nine years old. William Kinney, nine years old. Uh, Cynthia Peak, 61. Catherine Kuntz, 60. Mike Hill, 61 years old. Yeah. So straight ahead, about 15 minutes from now, we're going to be joined by the mayor of Nashville. His name is John Cooper. We're going to talk to him more about this and what he plans to do and what the city is dealing with. That's coming up. So many questions remain this morning. Also, this morning, we are tracking other developments. Another round of severe weather. It's expected to roll through California. We have a reporter live on the ground in San Francisco where storm-fatigued communities are preparing, bracing for more rain. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, we have new developments this morning in one of the four ongoing investigations that is facing former president and current presidential candidate Donald Trump. The Manhattan grand jury examining Trump's role in a hush money scheme has heard from former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker again yesterday. Pecker appeared before the grand, the panel in back in January. It's not clear yet why he was called back for more testimony. We're still reporting on that. 
Pecker was the chief executive of the National Enquirer's parent company known as AMI until 2020. He played a key role in connecting Stormy Daniels as attorney with then-Trump attorney Michael Cohen when Daniels wanted to sell her story of an affair she says she had with Trump to the paper. Trump has denied the affair. He continued to do so even as of last night. But Cohen did ultimately pay Daniels $130,000 in exchange for her silence. The grand jury is next scheduled to meet tomorrow. The panel last convened on March 20th. That was when they heard from Bob Costello at the request of Trump's legal team in order to contradict and push back on testimony that was then provided by Michael Cohen. Trump responded to all of this last night in an interview on Fox News. He's doing that out of civic duty. He's not doing that for any reason. I don't know Bob Costello, by the way. I don't know. Uh, I know he represents people that I'm, I'm close to in some ways. But I have to tell I don't know him. I know this. He's a highly respected person. Trump weighing in on Bob Costello. Also during that interview, the former president promoted a song that he collaborated on with a group of inmates who were in prison for their actions on January 6th during the Capitol insurrection. The song, quote, Justice for All, features the men singing the national anthem as Trump recites the Pledge of Allegiance. We should note that is also another investigation into the former president when it comes to his role on January 6th. California, already hammered by a wave of storms, now facing more rain, powerful winds, and heavy snow for the central coast and the Bay Area. The latest system from the Pacific has more than 9 million people under wind alert. Wind alerts. That could reach up to 70 miles an hour. Same as Camilla Bernal, live in San Francisco with more this morning. Good morning. Man, California just getting hammered. It can't catch a break. How are people, what are they doing? They're bracing for another storm. Well, look, everyone is just thankful for the rain, but also trying to do everything they can to get prepared, especially people that have already been flooded because the situation can get worse. It's just another round of storms here in California. The ground is already saturated. That means the potential for a lot of trees to come down, which also can translate to power outages. So you have to prepare for those power outages as well. Up in the mountains, there are many roads that are already closed because of the mudslides and the rock slides. There could be more closures. We have record levels of snowpack already. So it is just incredible what we've been seeing in California. The forecast today in the Bay Area, one to two inches of rain. It may not seem like a lot, but again, it could make a lot of the situations that people are dealing with even worse. On top of the rain and the snow, we're also expecting a lot of wind. 15 million people, both in California and Oregon, are under wind advisories. That means wind gusts of 45 to 55 miles an hour here in San Francisco. In previous storms, we saw some of the windows in the high rises shattering because of the wind. So all of that glass falling down to the streets. So it could be extremely dangerous, which is why authorities are telling people to prepare for this storm and just to be careful as they're walking around if they are going to be out today. Now, when it comes to the rain, this is going to be extremely beneficial to the drought conditions. We are already at a much better place than we have been over the last three years. The governor even uh, rolling back some of the water restrictions. And so people are thankful because at the moment, California is looking good when it comes to those drought conditions, Don. Hello, Bernal, San Francisco. Thank you, Camilla. Also this morning, a massive fire swept through a migrant detention center near the U.S.-Mexico border. It left nearly 40 people dead. 
The blaze broke out late Monday at the National Immigration Institute that you see here. That's a facility in Juarez. It's a major crossing point for migrants entering the U.S. The case of the fire right now is still unknown, but we are told that Mexico's attorney general's office is investigating. As we continue to follow that next, we are going to take you back live to Nashville. We are learning new developments almost by the minute in the elementary school mass shooting. The mayor of Nashville, John Cooper, is going to join us live next. And a live look at Paris, France, where demonstrators are out for another day of protests against the government's plans to increase the retirement age by two years. You can see Nashville there. There is more now on our top story this morning as we are tracking all of this. Here's what we know at this hour. The Nashville school shooter has been identified as a 28-year-old former student described by police as a female-to-male transgender person. The shooter had detailed maps of the school, including entry points to the building, and was armed with a handgun and two AR-style weapons. Newly obtained surveillance video shows the shooter firing through entryway doors before roaming the halls and eventually killing six people. The shooter was then killed by police 14 minutes after the first 911 call had been placed. The mayor of Nashville, John Cooper, joins us now. And good morning, Mayor. As I said, I'm so sorry that you were joining us in these circumstances and under this. And we want to talk about the victims in a moment. But first, I would like to start with what we know about this investigation. And have you learned anything else from authorities this morning about the motive here? Well, not about motive. I expect the police will have a lot of information today with a release of body camera footage and then probably a discussion about this manifesto. They found a lot of documents. This was clearly planned. There was a lot of ammunition. There were guns. It speaks to the heroism of the first responders that were able to deal with somebody who was prepared for a police response, and yet it was dealt with in only 14 minutes in running to gunfire and under a lot of gunfire. And in Nashville, this is our worst day, but it could have been worse without this great response. So we're very grateful for that. Yeah, and we're showing those two officers who heroically responded to this there now on the screen. So you do expect that officials will release more body cam footage today or body camera footage today, and you do expect them to to tell more about the documents they found that this shooter had? I I do. I mean, we have a good policy here of being very transparent and as quickly as they can, all this is going to be released to the public. What do you think we're going to learn from that? Well, I think I think the public is going to go back to understanding or questioning why we have so few restrictions on guns, particularly assault level type guns, that guns and gunfire the number one cause of death with children, and we really can't tolerate that anymore. And the fact that you have Nashville joins now a long list of where there are school shootings, where our kids are targeted. And you've got to be careful about the mental health and access to guns issue in America. Now in Tennessee, we've been rolling back gun laws and making them guns almost ubiquitous, but it makes guns first of mind when people are thinking about doing terrible things, and we've got to, we've got to make that clearly uh, more difficult. We owe it to the parents. Everybody that's attending every vigil in Nashville feels that there needs to be a public response to this kind of tragedy, 
and to say enough is enough and when are we going to learn and we're a grieving city um, right now and guns can be um, second amendment for sure but they can also be a little bit of a cult and let's let's not let's let's keep them out of the hands of people who should not be having them do you think there will be any particularly changes? assault guns well, President Biden is calling well, on a ban I, on that. What do you What do you think will happen in Washington? Right. Any action? Well, I I think it uh, more likely from the federal than from the state level. Cities are relatively not that effective in doing this. I think hopefully in the state will reverse the tide as opposed to a ten year tide of reducing regulation, common sense regulation on guns to go back where we were just 10 or 15 years ago, which was not an anti-gun place to be. It was just common sense regulation. So I hope the federal government will end, uh, will take this back up because I think the nation is demanding a discussion on it. Yeah, right now it seems unlikely Washington will do that. We'll see if that changes. But on this investigation, mm. when it comes to the shooter, back to this, we heard from a former teammate of the shooters who got a message from the shooter moments before the shooting happened. Do you know if authorities have heard from anyone else who says they also had contact with this person? Well, no, I, I don't. But I will say the manifesto that they found, the documents, that this was very planned. And uh, numerous sites were investigated and the, as the chief was saying in his press conference yesterday there was a lot of planning going on here so the response the effective response by first responders is all the more impressive um, i do think it'll take some time for people to really under begin to understand what could be the motives here and right now all we have are the footage i think in time the manifesto and and our praise for the 14-minute response yeah. that has ended up saving, I feel like, a lot of lives here in Nashville. And, Mayor, do you know what those other sites were that the shooter was scoping out? Well, I think the police will talk about them later today um, from that standpoint. And then for your viewers to know, this is a private school. They had their own... Um, precautions on these kind of events and it seems to me that they really will probably be congratulated on how good they were that the responding very appropriately in a hyper difficult situation uh, but it is a private school we did not have metro police officers there or SROs but you mm -hmm. see the footage of somebody literally shooting their way into the building and that's that's hard to prevent from happening. It's hard to harden a facility enough to prevent that from happening. Yeah, it's terrifying to see. I was saying earlier, you know, my mom is a school teacher. She She's right by a door that looks mm. similar to that one. Before we let you go, have you been able to have a chance to speak with any of the victims' families yet, any of the survivors of this shooting? Uh, I haven't. The, all of Nashville is praying for them. Um, again, thousands of people in our vigils um, and the post-traumatic stress for those families and for the city is pretty significant and I'm grateful for all the counselors doing all of their valued work right now. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of counseling going ahead. Mayor John Cooper, I know you're very busy right now. We're very grateful for your time this morning, so thank you for joining us. Thank you.
And we have other news to tell you about this morning. It is a runoff race that is underscoring the divide among Democrats on crime. We're sitting down with the candidates vying to be Chicago's mayor. First up, Brandon Johnson. He joins us live. That's next. How do you expect the city to grow and prosper, particularly its poorest communities, when, when you're talking about defunding the police uh, and, and the type of defunding that will impact the poorest communities? I'm not going to defund the police. And you, you know that. You know that. I have passed multi-billion dollar budgets over and over again. I'm not going to do that. So we are just one week away from the largest big city race to test voters' views on crime and policing. In the runoff race for Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis, both Democrats, have starkly different strategies on crime, the top issue for voters. So Vallis is more moderate, former public school chief, backed by the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. He has focused his campaign on a pro-police tough on crime message. Johnson is a progressive Cook County commissioner endorsed by the Chicago Teachers Union, has focused his um, campaign on the message of crime and addressing the root causes there. So Brandon Johnson joins us now. We have to note that his opponent, Paul Vallis, is going to join us tomorrow for an interview. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we have you here. So thank you very much for this. Listen, uh, I'd be remiss since you're a former school teacher. I have to ask you, a career as a public school teacher, you spent a, a while doing that. What is your reaction to the shooting in Nashville? Yeah, of course, my heart is with uh, the people of Nashville. I mean, this has been, you know, a, an epidemic for, for too long in our, in our country. And we have to do everything in our power to keep our communities safe, particularly our school communities, as you've indicated I've served as a public school teacher here in Chicago, and so my heart goes out to all of our, our public employees in general who are on the front lines holding it down for the people of America. And so, again, my thoughts and prayers are with the people and the families in Nashville, and again, committed to doing everything in my power and my authority as the next mayor of the city of Chicago to keep people safe. So with that in mind, public safety is a major issue for voters uh, in this election. Violence in the city spiked in 2020 and 2021, although shootings and murders have decreased since then. Other crimes, including theft, carjacking, robberies, burglaries, increased last year. So then what is your strategy, sir? Yeah, it's a serious problem for, for people all over the city of Chicago. It's something that my wife and I wake up to every single day. Uh, we're raising three children right here on the west side of Chicago in Austin, a beautiful community, uh, but Don, it is one of the more violent neighborhoods in the entire city. Over the last four years, just in Austin alone, um, almost 400 homicides. Um, that's more homicides just in my neighborhood um, than in many of the neighborhoods combined throughout the city of Chicago. And so, you know, I'm, this is top of mind. Um, listen, our approach is comprehensive. We have to get at the immediate uh, crisis and we have to solve Violent crimes in the city of Chicago, we have an abysmal clearance rate. When crime does take place, we're not solving it. 5% of the carjackings in the city of Chicago um, have gone, 95% uh, have gone unsolved. And so that's why immediately I'm going to train and promote 200 more detectives so that we are actually solving violent crime in the city of Chicago. Two, we have to implement the laws that are, that are already on the books. We have red flag laws that we are not implementing and that's going to cost us money. And so I'm prepared to invest in that. People who have guns that should not have them. We don't manufacture any guns in the city of Chicago, but yet somehow um, they flow through our streets. The third thing, of course, we have to make sure that we are implementing the consent decree. That's going to cost me $50 million. 
And there are dynamics within that consent decree that are pretty straightforward, making sure that we're providing mental health services for our law enforcement, making sure that we are providing the research to come up with the reforms that are needed to hold people accountable. But we also have to do what works, which is we have to prevent violent crime from happening. And that's why I'm committed to doubling the amount of young people that we hire in the city of Chicago, because there's a direct correlation between youth employment and violence reduction. We can do well, that let, right let, away. Let me jump in here because, listen, I know Chicago very well. I was a local reporter there for a while, and then I covered it on the national level, especially when you talk about that gun pipeline, right, that supplies so many guns uh, coming into Chicago. And then the, the, the issue that you have um, with neighborhoods that uh, see the most crime in that city. So policing is a big issue there. Your opponent, Paul Vallis has criticized you as supporting the defund the police, right? Mayor Lori Lightfoot during the election ran this, highlighting your comments, comments that you made just back in 2020. Watch this. We're talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but in particular, like our effort and our move to redirect and defund the amount of money that is spent in policing. I don't look at it as a slogan. It's, it's, actually, it's an actual real political goal. It's not just a slogan. It's a real political goal. You said you're going to hire more than 200 detectives and, and, and other uh, things as well. But how do you respond to that? Because you're saying directly that defund the police. It's not just a slogan. It is a goal for you. Goal for you. Well, here's what I'm committed to doing. I'm not going to defund the police. What I was referring to is, if you remember, Don, when Trayvon Martin uh, was murdered, President Obama said that if he were to have a son, he would look like Trayvon. What I'm speaking to is to the Mike Browns, the Laquan McDonald's, where over and over again, you've had people who are prepared and willing to work within the structure of the system in which, unfortunately, has been quite brutal uh, to black and brown people. And so even with body cams, it still continued to happen. So speaking to the real frustration that exists all over the city, all over the city of Chicago, but quite frankly, around the country, that when you work tirelessly to come up with, with reforms to stop the brutalization of unarmed black men, unarmed brown women, right? This happens too often. This is speaking to that frustration. But what I've said repeatedly is that I'm not going to defund the police. And I recognize, you know, that there have been people on the right in particular said that President Biden was going to defund the police. People said that Governor J.B. Pritzker was going to defund the police. Look, it's a lie. I'm not going to defund the police. This is about smart policing. And someone who but was waking are, up in the neighborhood Democrats, every single day. These are your fellow Democrats who are saying that about you. And if you, have, if you said that, listen, I understand that you're giving it context. And we live in a society now where people aren't real big on context. But do you, do you feel that you're going to have the support of the men and women in blue and the people there who are concerned about crime if you have said in your past, even in, with context here and nuance, that you're going to defund the police, that that was um, a goal for you. <clears throat> so I'm not going to defund the police. And yes, I'm going to have the support of the people on the front line because, look, 21 of funders for my opponent come right from the Trump camp. And so I get it that there are Democrats who behave as Republicans. And this is not a moderate. This is someone who has ruined economies all over the country. Mm -hmm. Here's someone and when he was in charge of the budget in Chicago. There were over 900 people being murdered every single year in the city of Chicago. Even the Chicago Police Department, the former chief of staff, indicated that my opponent's plan is just, it's, it's naive and okay. it's misleading. And so what I've said repeatedly is that I'm going to invest to make sure 
that we are implementing the consent decree, okay. that we are training and promoting 200 more detectives, and that we're providing mental health services for law enforcement who are serving on the front I'm, line I'm, I'm and up do not have the type of support that a, they need. A time crunch here, Brandon Johnson. Listen, uh, I really appreciate you joining us and taking the tough questions. Uh, thank you. Good luck to your campaign. Whatever way it goes, we hope that you'll come back here and see them this morning to discuss. So we appreciate it. Thank you. I will. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, I appreciate you. BrandonForChicago.com. Thank you very much. So tomorrow on CNN this morning, we're going to speak to Brandon Johnson's opponent, Paul Vallis. Make sure you tune in for that. Yeah, it'll be good to see what he says oh, in yes, response. Also, the planets are set to put on quite the show tonight. You will not need any fancy technology like those telescopes to see it. We'll tell you more right after this. Tonight, five planets. Sir Elton. Elton John will not be part of it. Mercury, (laughs) Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Uranus are all going to align right after sunset and be visible to the naked eye. No telescope required. Joining us now to talk about the planets aligning is the professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester, Adam Frank. Adam, I mean, I love the Smithsonian described this as a parade in the western sky. What are we going to see? How cool is this going to be? Basically, you're going to be able to see the architecture of the solar system. You're going to see the fact that all the planets all orbit around the sun in a giant pancake. And so that lineup that you're going to see on the western sky um, right after sunset is the fact that all the planets right now are in a position on that pancake that they're all going to basically line up. So you'll have Mercury, Jupiter, and then uh, Venus. Uranus is going to be a little hard to see without binoculars, and then Mars as well. So, you know, you're going to really see where we live. Yeah. It's, listen, you know, there's an old saying that, my goodness, the planets were aligned and it means something big and great and good. What does this mean? <laughs> I know it doesn't happen very often. How often does it happen? And what is this, what is the enormity of this, it, sir? The enormity is like coolness, basically. Like, you know, from a <laughs> cosmic perspective, these things aren't really that rare. Getting some of the planets, because they are all the planets are, we all orbit in a one giant Frisbee. So it's not uncommon to get the pl- some of the planets to align. This one, because you're getting so many of them aligning, is a little bit more rare. But it's more just to see where we are. I mean, it's, you know, what's amazing is uh, we've lost the night sky. There's The sky is so bright now with lights that we don't get to see the planets, but our ancestors, even 200 years ago, they noticed that the planets were moving around against the fixed stars and it freaked them out. It was a show. <laughs> and so for us to be able to rem- be reminded that we live in a, in a solar system, that we live in a, on a rock that's hurling with a bunch of other rocks around this giant flaming ball is a really powerful reminder of just how profoundly beautiful and mysterious the world is. Well, Adam, given that, quickly, what is the easiest way to see it tonight? What You just walk outside, or is there like, a certain place you should go? What is the easiest way to see it when this happens? You want to go someplace right after sunset where you get a good view of the western sky because Venus and Mercury are going to be pretty close to the horizon, and they're going to set pretty close. Um, uh, not, I'm sorry, Jupiter and, and Mercury. Uh, Venus will be higher in the sky, uh, so you'll be able to see it for longer. Then eventually Mars and the moon, you'll be able to see those as well. But you want a clear view of the western sky. If you have binoculars, then you'll probably also be able to make out Uranus as well. And, and someplace where there's not a lot of light pollution, someplace yeah. that's, you know, where it gets dark. and you don't The have better, it. yeah, the yeah. darker the skies, the better the show. All right. Adam Frank. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you.
My pleasure. Stars were aligned for this interview. I love it. What's the significance of that? He said Planets basically world. just because it's cool. Yeah, because it's cool. Thank you for joining us, everyone. So CNN Newsroom starts right after this quick break. Have a great day. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.